The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Pleasure now as the pastor to Westminster Chapel to introduce our speaker this evening, uh, Pastor Derek Bartlett. Um, for those of you who uh, don't know uh, Derek, you are in for a treat and a blessing this evening. Uh, Derek is one of my uh, favorite pastors in Canada, and uh, I've known him for a number of years now, uh, both as a, a friend, but also as a friend to the ministry of the Ezra Institute and of Westminster itself. Both of our um, annual conferences so far have been hosted by Derek in uh, Mississauga at City Centre Baptist. So I'm very grateful to Derek as a friend and as a pastor, both for uh, his willingness to support the ministry of Westminster and the Ezra Institute, and also his willingness to come tonight to share with us this evening. Uh, for those of you who don't know anything about Derek's history, he's presently, well, he's been the pastor at uh, City Centre Church in Mississauga for the past five years. Prior to that, uh, Derek was in Indianapolis uh, and uh, there uh, pastored a work of uh, about 1,800 people in the States. And before that, he preceded, um, who's the current pastor at West Highland? John Mahaffey, who we've had here last year, actually, at the Summer Fellowship. Uh, Derek preceded John Mahaffey at West Highland Baptist and during Derek's time there, the church grew from 300 to over 1,000 people. So uh, Derek is um, somebody who is well worth listening to. I respect him as a pastor, as a teacher, and as a Christian leader. And he's going to share God's word to us tonight from Habakkuk chapter 3. Derek, let's welcome Derek this evening to the Summer Fellowship. Hello and welcome. Glad that you're here. Can you hear me yet? Delighted that uh, you are here, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful evening. It's been a joy already for me to reacquaint fellowship with people that I haven't seen in over 30 years tonight from driving in from London, uh, Ontario. And uh, uh, every Christian needs heroes, you know. And I'm married to my biggest hero. Could I just introduce her to you, please? Honey, would you stand, please? April, my sweetheart of 29 years. But next to my wife, I have to admit honestly that Joe Boot is one of my biggest heroes in the faith because I believe Canada, more than anything else, needs shepherd leaders. And Joe is that kind of man. It's a privilege for me to be here tonight. I wouldn't have come because I feel unqualified, except that Joe invited me. He is a shepherd after God's own heart, who is instructing God's people in the knowledge and understanding that they need. But beyond having a shepherd's heart, he's a hero for me because he's a leader in the agenda of Christ in Canada. And so I feel particularly blessed to be here uh, uh, as his friend and, and supporter tonight, and we appreciate him so much. And uh, it's a joy to welcome you on this cool Wednesday evening. Don't you, aren't you amazed at how cool it is after the heat wave that we've been experiencing? It's incredibly comfortable in here tonight. Would you do me a favor, please, and join your heart with mine 
And let's pray before we open God's word and ask for his help. And we do just that, Lord. We need your help. This is your word. And we need the spirit of God to descend upon our hearts and write its truth truths upon our mind and open our understanding to what you want us to hear tonight. I am burdened that your people find the hope and encouragement that they need. So, Spirit of God, we ask you, speak to our hearts and teach us from your word, and we thank you for it because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The great star of Africa Diamond is a whopping 530-carat diamond that is mounted in the royal scepter of the cross, a renowned part of the crown jewels stored in the Tower of London. A whopping 530-carat diamond. And if I had to choose an Old Testament text that would adorn the scepter of our faith, I would choose Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. It's big, it's bold, and it's beautiful. It's big because it is a summary statement about faith that encompasses every imaginable crisis in our lives. It's bold because it does not pull any punches about how ugly life can get, but it reminds us that God is still sovereign. And it's beautiful because its message pierces the heart of every faithful follower of Jesus Christ, releasing life-giving peace and patience. So will you join me, please, in your Bibles in Habakkuk chapter 3. And I want to read for you from verses 16 to 19. And as always, if you don't mind me saying, I say it every Sunday over at City Center, the reading of God's Word is more important than anything I have to say about it. This is the Word of the Lord. Habakkuk chapter 3, and I'm going to begin at verse number 16. The prophet says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the oil fail, of the olive, excuse me, fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread upon my high places. I want to just remind you about three truths tonight. I want you to meet the prophet. I want you to worship with the prophet. And I want you to emulate the prophet. The prophecies of Habakkuk fit best in the last 20 years of the 7th century B.C., which has been called the Silver Age of Hebrew Prophecy, probably during the reign of King Jehoiakim. Jeremiah was the dominant prophetic figure in this century, but preceding him were three other prophets whose writings are part of the minor prophets. The one that we'll study tonight, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Nahum. What should be particularly interesting to us tonight is how this book parallels our experience today. 
Habakkuk lived during a time of great spiritual disaster in the nation of Israel. His prophecy is revealed, excuse me, revealed near the end of a national spiritual meltdown just prior to the invasion of Babylon. The nation that God revealed to Habakkuk was accomplishing his disciplinary action against the people of Israel. The book of Habakkuk is raw and real in its record of the crisis that the servant of God experienced as he interacted with the culture around him. It's incredibly personal and revealing as we are invited into the prayer closet of the prophet and we listen to him wrestle with anxiety over the spiritual decline of the nation that he loved and the seeming indifference of the God that he loved even more. Habakkuk is a record of the sacred pathway. You tracking with me? Wave at me if you are. Just make sure you're, you're alive tonight. You've had a long day. Privileged to be able to preach to you. Listen to me. Habakkuk is a record of the sacred pathway that leads from chaos to calmness to confidence in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that preaches to my heart when I think about the need for some advice in the chaos that's erupting all around us, the need to experience the calmness that Habakkuk experienced at the end of his book, and then even the courage that he seemed uh, to display as he finished his writing. It's a short book, only three chapters, and each chapter is a step in the pathway that reveals the journey that he took to experience the victory that I want to talk about tonight. In chapter 1, he complains to God. It's quite disconcerting to listen to the servant of God pour out his heart in such a raw and honest way. I'm sure none of us would like for our private musings to be written for others to hear as we struggle with the battles of life, particularly the battles of God's people. Chapter 2, Habakkuk decides it's better to listen to God. In essence, he stops complaining, he starts listening, and God answers him and begins to give him an indescribable view of the eternal God of the universe. And finally, in chapter 3, he prays. So, having met the prophet, let's worship with the prophet in verses 16 through 19. The third chapter in which our text is found is actually a psalm depicting Yahweh's theophany. It's a hymn. It's an anthem of praise. You can see that from the repetition of the word Selah in verses 3, 9, and 13. And so we're really being invited by Habakkuk to experience a triumphant song in spite of a threatening enemy that is about to pounce on, on Israel following a vivid description of the Lord's mighty acts in history, Habakkuk declares his unyielding faith in the triumph of God over adversity. We've already read the text. Let me talk to you about it. Did you notice in verse number 16 how the vision God gave to him affected him? I call this the view from the prophet's study. Just a few years ago, one of my boys said just before a service, Dad, I need a drink. So I took him out to a fountain, and as I reached for the fountain, my hand was trembling. 
And I'd been preaching about 25 years at that point, and my son looked up at me and said, Dad, are you nervous? He said, I'm always nervous when I preach. Shouldn't I be? I'm in good company, I think. Habakkuk said, as I understood what God was saying he's about to do, my body quivered in fear. My soul trembled before him. When it became clear to the prophet that there would be no escaping the savagery of the Babylonian army, his entire body began to convulse. He saw the nation of Babylon like a swarm of locusts about to strip Israel of her beloved land. And shockwaves were sent through his soul. Note, you've heard about that famous Baptist minister, Charles Spurgeon, who on one particular particular Sunday morning was moving from his study out to preach to that great congregation, and he had just prayed with his deacons. And as they followed him to the sanctuary, Mr. Spurgeon literally fell against the wall. The deacons weren't sure what was happening, so they inquired, and he said, the thought of the responsibility that falls upon my shoulders this morning is overwhelming me. Men, pray for me. Pray for me. That's Habakkuk's testimony. When I let my mind wander into the paths of God's Word, it causes me to tremble. I think that one of the lies that has seduced and corrupted the church in Canada is that Jesus is a high that always pumps us up. Frankly, much of the teaching of the Bible disturbs me and often makes my life more than just inconvenient. It's downright devastating. That's Habakkuk's testimony. doesn't fit well in a day when the prosperity gospel seems to be so popular. But I have a dreadful confession to make tonight, and it is that I believe in the prosperity gospel. Not the one that is infiltrating our churches across... North America, but the one that is detailed in Second John, uh, excuse me, Third John, verse number two, where John prayed, "I pray that you may be in good health." People in the church will come up and ask if I'll pray for them to be healed, and I say, "You betcha, I will. Of course, I will pray for you. It's a joy to pray for you." John said, "I pray that you may be in good health and that all may go well with you." That's pretty cool, don't you think? God wants everything to go well with you. But here's the crux of his instruction. And that your life may prosper as your soul is prospering. So I believe, Joe, in the prosperity gospel. I believe that God wants me to prosper in persecution. He wants my soul to prosper in poverty. He wants my soul to prosper when I'm in pain. In essence, that's the story of the book of Habakkuk that you can indeed prosper spiritually when your life comes unraveled at the seams. When it feels like God himself has abandoned you and you wonder if he's still on his throne and it causes your hands to shake in fear, you need to remember that others before you, like Habakkuk, trembled in their shoes. I preached my first sermon when I was 17 years of age in a small country church in the Holy Land. That's New Brunswick. (laughs) For those of you who don't know. And I still remember looking down at my pants because my knees were knocking. I was scared out of my mind. And then I read a prophecy like Habakkuk and say, 
you're really beginning to get the message of the Bible when it causes your heart to tremble. That's Habakkuk. But then he begins in verse number 17. I want you to see this catalog of catastrophe that he writes about. In verse 17, he begins six conditional clauses that seem to be in order of uh, ascending order of severity. With the loss of the figs ranking the least and the loss of the herds in the stalls causing the greatest economic disaster. The loss of any one of these blessings in, in Israel's life might be survived, but together the losses spelled universal disaster for the nation. He begins by saying, although the fig tree shall not blossom, the fig in ancient Israel was a sweet edible fruit. It was a delicacy in Israel. It was symbolic of peace and security. But it was no big deal if the first fruit, the first crop failed. We just wait for the second crop later in the fall. And if that one was interrupted, we just look forward to the next year. So he's starting, as it were, to to put the squeeze on the hearts of the nation of Israel in these seven conditional clauses. Second observation that he makes is, neither shall fruit be in the vines. Of course, grapes provided for the daily drink, but again, the loss of the fruit of the vine would produce inconvenience rather than deprivation. Let me remind you again that Habakkuk is painting the picture of the nation of Babylon, the Chaldeans as they're called in the book of Habakkuk, like a swarm of locusts that are about to descend upon the nation and slowly but methodically destroy the very people of God. And Habakkuk is writing in graphic terms the ascending order of severity of of their infiltration of the land. The third thing that he says is, the labor of the olive shall fail. The olive crop, on the other hand, produced oil for cooking and lighting. More than just a mere nuisance in the end, it was the beginning of a threat to the daily necessities of life. I wonder if we could imagine going to our favorite grocery store. That would be Sobeys. It's another maritime chain. (laughs) Or Longo's, or whatever you prefer. And on one particular day, you notice that your favorite drink is not stocked on the shelves. It would be irritating at worst, wouldn't it? Because you imagine it will be there next week. But the following week, you discover that there are no drinks available at all. And you can't help but notice that the shelves across the entire store are beginning to look sparsely stocked. And it sends a shiver up and down your spine. That's the spirit in which Habakkuk is inviting us into his prophecy. He says, I want you to see the growing catastrophe that is moving across the land. I want you to feel the urgency of what is about to happen. Then he moves on to say, and the fields yield no meat. Grain, which would be barley and wheat provided for the staple diet of Palestine. So now he's moving to a more severe experience where starvation would take place for large segments of the population. He continues by observing the flock shall be cut off from the fold. He's talking now about cattle and sheep that would make up the primary source of wealth in Palestine. So he's in essence saying we're seeing the JSX, 
devastated. That would be the Jerusalem Stock Exchange is falling down around them and people are beginning to panic. He concludes by saying, and there be no herd in the stalls. He's describing for an agrarian society the complete loss of everything that has sustained the nation of Israel. I really hope you're working hard to track with me tonight. Because I'm preaching to the beautiful hearts of God's people who in similar ways have lived through seasons of irritation, inconvenience, and then moved to utter devastation, loss of hope. Questions about whether God was still on his throne, ordering the events of your life. You need, to, you need to enter into where Habakkuk is going so that you can breathe in the fresh hope that he gives. Perhaps even more importantly in Habakkuk's catalog disaster is the spiritual implication. Because what he's just described is the lifting of all of God's favor upon the nation of Israel. Because everything he described was detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13, when God said to his people, He will love you bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that his word to your fathers will be fulfilled. So in essence, Habakkuk is witnessing the disfavor of the God who had called Israel to love and serve him being lifted from their lives. And he panicked. Then we come to verses 18 and 19. The text where everyone loves to park. (laughs) And he confesses, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. Who wouldn't like to get there? The truth of the matter is, you can't get there until you let your heart feel the devastating loss that you often experience in life as you follow God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Frankly, this text feels out of place to me. When you place it beside the testimony that Habakkuk just gave and realize what he's saying. First thing he says is, I will rejoice in the Lord. And he chose a particular Hebrew word that means to jump or to shout for joy. So Habakkuk basically begins his book as the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. He's doubting and complaining and wondering what God is up to. But he moves to a place of shouting in joy before God. It feels awkward to me to enter into what he's saying. So follow with me. Doesn't it feel counterintuitive when your life is falling apart? Heart, not simply out of blind bravado to say I'm trusting in God, but when your life is dissolving before your very eyes and yet you trust in the Lord, doesn't that feel counterintuitive? Well, it is. It is because your flesh is telling you that's not the right thing to do. You should take your life by the bootstraps and pull yourself together and get your act squared away. Habakkuk is giving us the right Advice. This is a call to celebration. 
I've been a Christian for a little while. You can tell from the gray on my temples. I've been walking with Jesus for a little while. And I have to tell you, it's not easy to get here. And let's not flippantly quote this text until we realize what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. To end up where Habakkuk was able... To end up where he did is the right place. It's where I wish and pray for all of us. But it's a hard journey. And of course he says, I'm going to jump for joy. Let me just underscore this again. It feels awkward to me. Habakkuk has just prophesied that the Chaldeans are about to descend like a swarm of locusts upon Israel. The people are beginning to see the economic meltdown. The Jerusalem Stock Exchange has collapsed. And people are living in utter terror. And over yonder is a prophet who's jumping for joy in the Lord. That's just weird. That's just, that's just weird. But isn't that the point? Faith doesn't make sense to the carnal mind, to the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, Herein we as Christians are to differ from the world when hell is let loose and worst comes to worst. We are to do more than put up with it and be steady. We are to know a holy joy and manifest a spirit of rejoicing. We are to be more than conquerors instead of merely exercising self-control with the aid of an iron will. We are to rejoice in the Lord and to joy in the God of our salvation. Such a time is a test for our Christian profession. If we are not then more than conquerors, we are failing as Christians. This is probably brought home to me on a weekly basis as an under-shepherd in God's flock. When I get word from one of the saints in the church that a crisis has struck in their lives and I either go to their home or pick up the phone and just recently I called a lady who had diagnosis of cancer and I said, you know we love you, we're praying for you, what can we do? And I can still hear her sweet, calm voice on the other end of the phone saying, Pastor, I'm good, everything is fine, I'm trusting the Lord. I saw her in church the next Sunday and I took her by the hand. I wouldn't let go. I pulled her just a little closer and said, thank you for witnessing to me of the sufficiency of God's presence in the life of his people. This is no small order, is it? To look at your trials, to weigh your losses, and to declare but I'm going to jump for joy because God is my God and I'm experiencing his salvation. I want to say it again. I know I said it a moment ago, but Habakkuk is not practicing some kind of blind bravado here. He's embracing the raw, ugly details of where the nation had fallen spiritually and he saw the coming judgment of God upon the nation of Israel and yet he chose to trust God. Isn't that faith? Faith is saying, I see all the disaster, but I still trust God. I'm going to move forward. I'm getting ahead of myself. The key in the text is that he tells us how he experienced this great moment of victory. It was not, as the good doctor Lloyd-Jones says, through the power of an iron will. It was through the Lord himself. It was by sitting quietly in the presence of Almighty God and breathing in His strength. 
by faith, assimilating into your heart the very hope that reverberates in the presence of God. That's what he's telling us was taking place. So we move from this catalog of catastrophe to this this call of celebration to a promise of divine strength in verse number 19. Notice what he says. He gives us two images about what will happen when a believer makes such a strategic choice to trust in God when, again, if I may quote Dr. Lloyd-Jones, when all hell lets loose in your life. Where does it come from? What is the result? He says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like, I want to refer to this as the dancing deer. I grew up primarily in a rural village in an isolated part of New Brunswick, and and I still have vivid images in my head as a boy seeing these deer uh, dancing through an open field, or even more fascinating was to see them move with lightning speed across the rocky forest bed, never tripping or losing their way. Isn't that that a tremendous promise? Imagine, Imagine yourself dancing across the crisis in your life with the joy of the Lord sustaining you. Friends, this isn't pie in the sky philosophy. This is bedrock theology that works when the people of God dare dare to put it into practice in their lives. I'd like to be like the dancing deer when trouble strikes my life. I know I'm talking to someone who's been... If I could come to your prayer closet and listen in, the burdens have been weighing heavily on your heart. And you feel nearly crushed beneath its load. You need, to, you need to stand back up and shake yourself off and remind yourself where your strength comes from. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Then he describes the second image that he gives us is of the victorious warrior who is conducting a victory lap around the defeated enemy. The general or the colonel or the ruling military authority would jump in his chariot for the army that has just been defeated and he'd circle around in a victory lap. Other than the victorious cry of Jesus Christ from the cross when he said, it is finished, there is no place in all of the Bible that breeds victory in the heart of the Christian like Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. It's the greatest victory shout in the Bible. Can't wait for the Olympics to start. One of my favorite parts is watching the athletes as they run around in their victory lap, carrying the flag of their beloved nation. That's what Habakkuk is telling us to do. Pick up your flag and march around the troubles of life, declaring that you are more than an overcomer through Christ. Shout, as Paul did, thanks be to God who gives me the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can almost hear Paul chiming in at this point, can't you? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. If you lose sight of that, you've lost the heartbeat of being a Christian. Hang in there, won't you? So we've met the prophet. I hope, I hope you've worshipped with him. Now thirdly and lastly, uh, I want to talk about emulating the prophet. How can we follow in his footsteps? There are two lessons to learn from him. Just two. I have several subpoints, but just two lessons. The first is that you must engage in the process that he experienced with God. One of the most disturbing realities for me as a pastor in the church in Canada is that people come to church and coast in their faith from Sunday to Sunday. And on a weekly basis, I get in the faces of our people and say, if you coast, you're toast. You need to get in the ring and fight in this incredible process that we call sanctification because that's what Habakkuk is about. He's revealing a process, progression in his faith. I have to admit that when, Roger, when I first studying these verses, I felt overwhelmed because I had to confess honestly to God, I don't respond like this half the time when my world turns upside down. I go home and whine to my wife, gripe to my neighbors and complain to my staff until it dawned on me as I was reading, neither did Habakkuk end up there instantaneously. He experienced a close encounter with the living God and he moved from doubting to shouting. And that's what needs to happen in our journey with him. Are you engaged in the process? Are you an activated Christian? Are you telling God the truth from your heart? That's one of my subpoints, by the way. If you're going to engage in the process, you must learn to pray from your heart. You see, rote praying won't reach heaven. And canned prayers won't cut it with God. And we have a revelation in the prayer closet of the servant of God that is uncomfortably revealing. He complains to God. Let me, let me just read it for you in case you don't remember some of what it sounded like. Listen carefully. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence? By the way, that word violence is the word that was used in the Hebrew to describe the chaos that took place on earth prior to the flood. That's what Habakkuk was feeling like. And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. That's pretty raw. I don't know a lot of Christians who now know how to be that honest with God. One of the things I love about the church I'm in is you ought to hear some of the people pray. Because when they pray, they let loose. I don't mean they, sh they shout silliness. They, they've learned how to pray from their heart. And when they're hurting, they weep out loud. They cry out loud to God make you really uncomfortable, but every once in a while in prayer meeting, I'll say, everybody stand up at once and just start calling out to God with what's on your heart. 
Most of the time I just have to stop and weep and say, oh, thank you, God, thank you. First time I experienced this was in Chennai, India. I was there over September 11, 2001, and our plans last minute changed. We weren't allowed off the campus anymore because the the Muslims who were celebrating in the streets, they, they, didn't want any, they didn't want the 10 American and Canadian pastors to be in jeopardy. So they had a, a, a prayer meeting in a room about this size, as I remember, with about 2,000 people packed in it. It was so hot I could hardly breathe. And I was scared out of my mind. I'm married to an American. My children are all American citizens. And we couldn't get through on the phones back to home to find out what was really happening. It was a scary time to be overseas, to say the least. The turning point in that whole experience for me was when those 2,000 Christians, by the way, a thousand of them were pastors from all over India that didn't even have a shirt on their back. We were there to teach them, and I should have been sitting letting them teach me. They walked in bare feet. Many of them would give their lives for the gospel of Christ before I ever have a chance to meet them again. They stuffed us in the middle of this room, put us in the, in the center of, of a sacred circle, and started crying out to God for us. I didn't understand what most of them were saying, but I knew that it was authentic praying. Listen to me. Don't waste your time or God's by repeating prayers that mean nothing to you. If you're devastated by the injustice in Canada, tell God about it. If you're sick and tired, if you're sick to the core of the weakness of the church in Canada, get on your knees and weep it out. Weep it out to God. So I'm talking about the process that took Habakkuk from chaos to calmness to celebration to courage. It begins with praying from your heart. You can't miss this. Number two, you must develop a right understanding of God. It's the crux of the whole book. Habakkuk lost sight of who God was. Does that ever happen to you? Have you ever found yourself losing sight? Even wondering. I thought I knew who he was. But what I'm experiencing seems inconsistent with who he is in his word and all he's doing is deepening your faith so that you can understand who he really is. What a a privilege to preach to a great crowd on a hot, I mean a cool Wednesday evening. I won't keep you too much longer. I wish I had three hours to talk to you about the view that Habakkuk developed of who God is. Perhaps the leading characteristic of God in the whole book is that he's sovereign. Habakkuk began to see that God is indeed in control even when chaos erupts across the land. That's why he cried out in chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That would be you and me. And what will bring silence, peace to your heart? Recognizing that God is still on his throne, right where he's always always been. He's sovereign over his people in this book. He's sovereign over his servants' lives, and this is incredible. He's sovereign over the nations of the world. What was hard for Habakkuk to grasp 
was that the Chaldeans who were about to pounce on Israel was doing so at God's beck and call. And eventually he would bring judgment upon the Chaldeans and rescue his people and bring them back to the land that he'd sworn to their forefathers. But Habakkuk is seeing that the Babylonians are right where God wants them. There's probably no one in all of Canada that whines to God more than I do about what the changes I've witnessed in the short life that I've lived in this country of mine. I can't believe it. And I whine to God and I complain to God and I cry to God because I love this land. My grandpa was a decorated soldier so that I could experience the freedoms I have now that are being lost. Habakkuk says, don't get too worked up, son. God is in control. And Canada is on the track that God ordained before time began that we needed maybe to do for the church. Maybe, Joe, to get some of us under shepherds on our knees, broken before God, to cry out to Him. I don't mean to insult any. Most pastors you meet today are as indifferent as the average crowd across the land. Most churches are filled with pastors in the pulpit who won't rock the boat about the disaster, the mess we're in. And I don't believe in being an alarmist to be an alarmist and draw attention, but it's time to sound the alarm. <laughs> but never at the expense of the sovereignty of God over his people, his church, his world. One that I particularly loved is, is Habakkuk's reference in this chapter, chapter 3, verse 2, to God's sovereignty over time. He prayed in the presence of the Lord, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. The expression in the midst occurs 273 times in Scripture, but only here does it ever refer to time. And Habakkuk is saying time, like an ever-flowing stream, was hurrying on its way at the command of God Almighty. Why was I born in a pagan home? Why did I grow up as a little boy experiencing physical, emotional, and sexual abuse? Why did, why did I live where I lived? Because God is in control of time. He has a plan. He's working out. And he knew what it would take to bring me to the gospel and change my life forever. He knew one of the happiest days of my life would be sitting in the, in the dean's office waiting to have some demerits. I was going to beg for some demerits to be removed from an act of rebellion on campus. My buddy led me to do it, of course. And I'm sitting there, and up comes this beautiful, blue-eyed, blonde American girl. God ordained two people from two different countries who would have no chance to ever meet except in the wonderful plan of God. So as bad as it gets, friends, remember God is sovereign. I told you I wish I had three hours. It settles upon Habakkuk that God is eternal. He said, you are from everlasting to everlasting. We shall not die. He, he calls him holy in the book. You know why he does that? Because at one point he said, it looks as though you're indifferent to the evil that is parading across our nation. 
But I realize you're not unholy in any way. You are the holy God I know you to be. It may appear that evil goes unchecked, but it doesn't. In the end, the scales of righteous justice will be weighed out in time. And at the end, you know why we're able to let go of the, of the, the need to retaliate for people who hurt us? Because we commit it to the God who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. We're not looking f- I'm not looking forward to vengeance on my worst enemy. I don't want God to have vengeance on my worst enemy. I want him to have mercy on my worst enemy. By the way, that's one of the characteristics of God. He's always he's merciful. He calls him that. He's a merciful God in wrath. Remember mercy. There's not a person in this room who deserved the gospel least or less than me. It's the truth. I get to heaven, I'm going to argue with Paul. So you were not the chief of sinners. You were wrong. I I am not worthy to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to stand in this great pulpit. I'm not worthy. But you're worthy and I'm worthy only because of Jesus Christ and our holy God, our sovereign God, is a merciful God. I just preached last Sunday on his healing of the leper. He was moved, the Bible says, He reached out while the man was still leprous, boldly blasting through the law that forbade uh, a wholesome person to touch a leper. He was moved to heal him. God is always moved by the sin, the brokenness, and the devastation. I hope you're still tracking with me. The landing gear is coming down. We're emulating the prophet. We're engaging in the process that he experienced with God. Pray from your heart. Develop a right understanding of God. When your world starts to shake, get along with God and fix your eyes back upon who you know He is. Embrace the salvation that He did is another part of that sanctified process. I love how He declares in chapter 3, He is the God of my salvation. Isn't it cool tonight to declare that God is a God of salvation and He loves to give forgiveness of sins to those who come to Him? I love it. But that's not the point. The point is that he's the God of my salvation. He's the God of your salvation. I meant what I told you a few minutes ago. Joe is one of my heroes. It's easy for me to see God's grace at work in his life. God loves to come and tap you on the shoulder and remind you that he is the God of your salvation. When the world is rattling you with the troubles all around you. Come back to ponder for a few minutes what God did to save you. That's what Isaiah meant in chapter 12, verse 3, when he said, Therefore with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. Imagine a pristine well flowing with life-giving oxygenated water on a hot summer's evening. He says that's what salvation should be like when you remember what God has done for your soul. That's how sweet and beautiful it should be every time you come. So in essence, Habakkuk was saying, whatever happens around me, he's the God of my salvation. I could preach on this for four hours. Anticipate the future. Anticipate the future that he saw. Because in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a strange silence in our pulpit 
about the prophetic word of God concerning our future. I've long since learned to love the fact that God's church doesn't have all the same views about future events. But you cannot be a follower of Jesus without believing that he said, I will, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And people, you're coming with him. You're coming with him in the clouds of glory. And Habakkuk saw that day. And he said, that future day is enough to get me through the pressing problems of my my current life. Engage in the process he experienced with God. And then secondly and lastly, uh, walk by faith as he prescribed. You must engage in the process like Habakkuk did. And you must walk by faith as he prescribed in chapter 2, verse 6. Do you remember the Star of Africa diamond that I told you about earlier? It's one of the... It's one of several larger diamonds and about a hundred smaller ones that were cut from the greater Cullinan diamond, measuring an astounding 3,100 carats discovered in 1905 in Cullinan, South Africa. If Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, is like the star of Africa in the scepter of our faith, then Habakkuk 2.6 is the 3,100 carat Cullinan diamond from which our faith has been formed. You remember what he said in that verse, don't you? He said, the just shall live. The righteous shall live by his faith. Here's what he's saying. The anxiety, the chaos, the questions, the struggles and the fears that you're experiencing in your life must all be met with faith. And you will then be triumphantly able to declare in a big, bold, beautiful message of hope, strength, and peace as you walk in the faith that Habakkuk is prescribing. It was somewhat of a revelation to me because the heart cry of the Reformation was based upon Paul's teaching in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. But in essence, Paul drew all of his theology from another perspective on the power of faith. And the power of faith that Habakkuk prescribed is this, that the only way the church can respond to the crisis that is taking place all around it and remain stable as moral madness in the culture continues to press in upon us, and we honestly admit that all of it's creating anxiety and doubt within my heart, I respond by faith. I'm tempted to wonder what God is up to. And I have a lot of sleepless nights. Do you? You ever lose sleep? Wondering about what's going down? The, the answer is that you must respond by faith. To quote the good doctor again, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, faith always refuses to panic. As the church drifts further and further into spiritual confusion, I didn't plan to say this, but I, let me go on a, a quick tangent. I can't believe how much church life And pastoring has changed in the 30 years I've been serving God in the church. I've never seen a time when the church was was groping in such spiritual darkness right now as it is in Canada. But I haven't lost hope. We've never seen wickedness cascade around us like the mighty Niagara Falls as much as we see right now. And we're getting soaked with its putrid poison, whether we like it or not. 
We're like Nick Walenda walking across the falls. And evil is cascading around us and the spray is just washing over our faces. Just as we walk up and down the streets of our towns, cities, and villages. And with it comes my own heart sinking to new levels of brokenness and sorrow. The answer is that I walk by faith. A few... A few months, a few years back, my wife and I started into a valley. I won't bore you with the details. But I didn't think I'd make it. The things that were closest to us, the people who are dearest to us, (laughs) all of a sudden seemed to be dragged away with the talons of the evil one in their back. So I could now take broken-hearted parents by the hand at the door with prodigal sons and daughters and draw them into my chest and say, I know. They fight to get away and say, No, no, you don't understand. You're a preacher. How could a preacher understand? And I say to them, I know what you feel like right now. I'd give up the pulpit. I'd give up all of it. Not to have walked... But now my wife and I would tell you we wouldn't change. Does that sound sound senseless? I wouldn't change the valleys because they've taught me about the sufficiency of faith to address every broken-hearted problem I've ever wept over in my life. The, The landing gear is down. Did I just say that? We're circling back around the airport. Because I have to remind you, Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. It's the heart cry of the gospel. And it's not just enough to say it has saved you from your sin. It must also stabilize you through the storms of life. Or it's not faith. It's not faith. If it's only good for Sunday, it's no good for nothing. Bad grammar. But it's true. It's true. Jesus Christ is salvation. He is strength. He is hope. He is joy. But faith says, he's my salvation, he's my strength, he's my hope, he's my joy. And faith engages the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in every need and every crisis. I wasn't ready for the mind-blowing experience of three weeks ago when we were sitting in the hospital waiting room and my firstborn son walked out to say, it's a boy, it's a boy, it's a boy. I really didn't think that a, that a man could ever experience greater, a greater thrill than being a father four times over. I've heard grandparents say it. You wait, you wait. You just wait till you see your own children having children. No less than three times, I've had a private moment alone with my beautiful little grandson, Dawson, and I've cradled him up as tightly as I could in my arms. And for a few brief moments, I've panicked and said, Oh, son, grandson, what a miserable world! You're coming into. Where's your daddy going to send you to school? Where are you going to live? 
persecution is encroaching increasingly upon the church. What's it going to look like for him in a short period of time? And like a wave washing over my soul was the words of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith for their grandchildren and believe that God will raise up a new generation of boys and girls, teenagers, men and women who will follow Jesus Christ just like their mom and paws have and be strong in faith. Keep your eyes. Will you keep your eyes where they belong? Father, we bless you and thank you for the raw details of this book tonight that are uncomfortable, but they're real. They force us to authentic living. But thank you, Lord. Thank you that Habakkuk rushes us to the solution. And I pray for a fresh, new understanding of you as our God and Father, of Christ as our Lord, and the Spirit as our guide to break upon every heart. Oh, Lord, fill your people with the hope of Habakkuk tonight. Remove our doubting and in its place bring the shouting, the glorious shouting of a triumphant faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.